So sometimes when you uh, when you start working on a passage like this, you um, you think you know where you're headed, and then you get down into it, and you realize it's not exactly what you thought it was. And we looked at Acts 10 last week, and um, and we looked at it primarily from the vantage point of Peter. What a what a what a large and and, and massive obstacle this was for Peter to overcome. To, uh, to go to Cornelius' house to begin with, to meet with him. And so we, we looked at uh, the transformation that had to take place in Peter's life in order for Peter to go and even present the gospel to a man like Cornelius. Now, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at Cornelius. I'll just tell you, um, as, I, as I worked through the passage this week, and uh, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a sermon that has three points to it. Now, if this doesn't get an amen, then I give up, okay? But this morning, you will be able to leave saying, I was there the day a Presbyterian pastor preached a one-point sermon. All right? Amen, all right? Because the more I looked at the passage, the more I realized it... Um, I liked my first point so much... And it's so good that I have decided this morning to lop off two points, right? It's, we're, it's nearly summer. I'm going to give you guys some extra time on the lake. Um, so here we are. We're working our way through the book of Acts. Now, I think about it from, think about it this way. We are, we have a front row seat and we are getting to watch the, the church unfold, grow, begin to spread. Remember what Jesus said back in the Gospels. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand its onslaught. It is essentially, right? The gates of hell will not prevail. Gates are immovable. Okay, so typically when you hear that passage, you, you think, well, hell is on the move, but the church is going to stand firm. And that's not what Jesus was saying at all. Jesus was saying, I am going to build my church. It will grow and expand. And the gates, the immovable gates of hell, will not withstand its onslaught. And as you look at what's happening in the book of Acts, that church is, is growing and expanding. And, and in order for that to happen, Peter, people like Peter have to have had their hearts changed, their eyes open. And, and so the Lord is, is at work, even in his apostles, in order to cause the expansion of that church. And this morning, we get to see one slice as that church grows into um, the Roman population, the Gentile population. And so we get to see it happening um, through this vantage point. If you think about uh, one of the aspects that is somewhat obscured in this text is to think about the timing of the crucifixion and the unleashing of the, the church. At this point in history, the spot where this is happening, um, Rome is the, it's the dominant force in the world. It ranges, covers all of North Africa. All right. 
All of North Africa, what we know today is Portugal and Spain and France, even up into Britain, down into Germany. Um, it, it would have covered uh, what we know as you know, uh, Bosnia and the Czech Republic and all of those areas, Turkey, parts of the Stan region, um, and then down into what today we know as uh, Iran, Persia, and, and then back around. It covered a huge chunk of the known world. And um, and that's not insignificant, right? Because even though it's large, it's connected. Connected by a common language, uh, either Latin or Greek. Connected by their, the Roman road system. And so Rome, as it expanded out like this, put outposts all over. And uh, and it's these soldiers, these Roman soldiers, that become part of that uh, gospel spread. We already know from the gospel accounts that there was a centurion there as Christ died who announced, surely this was the Son of God. I mean, there, there have already been transformations in their ranks. And this morning we get to see one more. You know, Jody and I, um, our families grew up, or we partially grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. And one of the things about Montgomery is that it's uh, the home of uh, the Air Force's Air War College. So you have, uh, and, and these colleges, these the Naval War College, the National War College, these are for senior level officers. And um, typically it's the last school that they're going to attend. And, um, and so they're lieutenant colonels or colonels and they go off to these schools. And so Montgomery, Alabama is one of those locations. And every year they host a, a, an Air War College that comes in, in in August, and they stay there about nine months, ten months, and then they rotate out. And so all of these officers are continually coming through. And, um, and always included in those classes are officers from other nations. So it would not have been uncommon when we were there, and, and I'm sure today, uh, to have officers from Egypt and from Turkey and from Germany and from Britain and uh, from Bahrain and and all sorts of countries. And they come to Montgomery, Alabama, right? So these countries send their officers to the Bible Belt to learn about uh, military tactics from the Air War College. And uh, and what, what they do is they pair these these officers up with families in the community to show them our culture and, uh, you know, have them over for meals and uh, and maybe occasionally to share the gospel with them. And then they go back to their home country. What a what an amazing opportunity if you if you think about it that way. Right. And uh, and there are lots of folks in Montgomery that think of it that way. And so they go out and they they serve as sponsors for these folks. Well, in the text, the passage, it, it's, think of it somewhat similarly. Rome has sent this centurion to go to Caesarea. And he's there. He has a, something of an outpost. And, and this is where he lives and resides. And there's family and there are friends. And, uh, and typically, a centurion would have had uh, a, about a 100 folks underneath him. Uh, sometimes there are fewer. Sometimes that number would have been doubled. Just depending, but a hundred would have been kind of that ballpark average. Um, 
And, uh, and so here is the centurion living in Caesarea, and, uh, and he's living life. What else do we know about him? We want to kind of think about this guy because he is the focus. Well, it tells us that he was a family man. His family was there. He was devout in his worship. The text says that he was a God-fearer. If you look up uh, at those first couple of verses in chapter 10, right? Uh, his name was Cornelius. He was a centurion. He was of the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He was a generous man. He gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. In fact, in the first encounter, we see this Roman centurion, the angel of the Lord appears to him at three in the afternoon, which would have been the time that you would have been having your afternoon prayer. And so he's in afternoon prayer when the angel of the Lord appears to him. He was described by the men who came for Peter as a man who was righteous and God-fearing. Now, that indicates that he had some level of understanding about who God was. He was interested in God. He was, uh, it, it, to the best degree that he could, he was trying to follow the moral law as it had been revealed to him. Um, and so we can begin to kind of construct this picture. Here is a man who is doing the best that he can with what he has. And the text tells us, and and this is a little bit tricky, so we're going to work our way through it, that God had a certain regard for this man as well. In verse 34, we see, Then Peter began to speak, and he says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. We talked about that last week. That was a very important point for Peter. And then verse 35 tells us, But accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now that is a... That verse poses a little bit of an issue for us. What does it mean that God accepts a man or people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Does that mean that God had accepted this centurion, that he was justified before God, that he was made right before God? Is that what we're to understand? If that's the case, that would put this text in contradiction with really the rest of Scripture. Because what we know from the rest of Scripture is that to, to be justified is to trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. So we don't think it means that. It can't mean that. So what does it mean? Here's how someone stated it. They said, here, however, we see God showing some kind of regard and respect for a man who does not have enough spiritual knowledge to be saved, but who is honoring all the spiritual knowledge he has. Paul would call him a seeker. In uh, 1 Corinthians, he describes one who does not understand, but who seeks after more knowledge. You see, the reason that we, the reason we really know that whatever acceptance this was 
that is being spoken of in verse 34 and 35, it couldn't have been salvation. Because God, the story itself tells us that God is sending Peter in order that Peter would what? Share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Cornelius and his family. And that's exactly what he does. So that acceptance somehow is, uh, it helps us to think about the people with whom we have contact. God has regard for them. They are made in his image. Some of them doing really, in a sense, the best they can, if you want to think about it that way, with the knowledge they have of God, even if it isn't to their salvation. There's one more item here, and it's this. That this centurion was a man made in the image of God. Doesn't sound like a big deal to you and I, but it's a big deal. It was a big deal for Peter to have his eyes open to realize that the centurion was worth his time. As a Gentile, For him to go and approach him and share the gospel with him. That he and this centurion were equals. Was a big deal for Peter to get to. And it came by revelation that God gave to him. Remember three times? We talked about it last week. My kids reminded me that I'd used the illustrate. The one, two, three. Right? That God had to get Peter's attention. To tell him, this man matters. When our kids were young, younger, we taught them the children's catechism. We used the children's catechism. And there were, there were a series of questions that I remember them learning specifically. Questions 17, 18, 19, and 20. Question 17 is this. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image. Question 18. Of what were our first parents made? God made Adam's body out of the ground and Eve's body from the rib from Adam. Question 19. This was the one that our kids loved for some reason. What else did God give Adam and Eve besides bodies? What's the answer? A soul that will last forever. And then the question that would really get you is, do you have a soul as well as a body? To which my kids would say, yes, and my soul will last. Forever. When did you think about that? This Roman centurion had a soul that would last forever. You have a soul that will last forever. Everyone you will touch and come in contact with has a soul that will last forever. I've got a quote that I want to read you. 
it's a little bit on the long side, so let's do it together. And I'll kind of walk us through it. It's from C.S. Lewis. And I'm closing with this. Can I get an amen? C.S. Lewis said this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, lowercase. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. So here's what he's saying. You and I, no matter who it is, be it the dullest person we've ever interacted with, meaning the most uninteresting person, no matter who they are, they, were we to meet them in future glory, we would be tempted to worship them because of their glorified state. Or if we were to encounter them in hell, it would be of such only we would know in in a nightmare. Okay? He goes on. He says, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, and all politics. So what is he saying? In all your interactions, keep in mind that every person, no matter what the interaction, every person, is headed to one of these two destinations. Either to glory or to a corruption that is beyond our imagination. He goes on. He says, there are no ordinary people. He says, you have never talked to a mere mortal. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And then he says this, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object Presented to your senses. Next to the blessed sacrament, your neighbor is the holiest object you have ever been presented with. Isn't that amazing? Peter got it. He understood as he made his way. Remember, God showed him food, animals that were clean and unclean. By the time Peter gets to Cornelius' house and he's knocking on the door, he's confessing to Cornelius 
man, that God doesn't show favoritism towards men. Do you? God doesn't. We shouldn't. The Lord Jesus didn't. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to love our neighbor. But as you go out into the world, think about this. Every person you interact with, play golf with, play cards with, have a cigar with, every person you dine with, every person you meet on the road, every person that serves you in a restaurant, every person, no matter, made in the image of God with a soul that will last forever. Are you praying for them? Sharing the gospel with them? Every person you meet is headed to one of two destinations. You have the good news. Peter had the good news to make possible the centurion's road to heaven. And he did. And the centurion and his whole family responded, and the Lord poured out his spirit on them. You know, as a preacher, I want to go to that part of the passage, and I want to tell you all these things about it. And I want to say, look, look, it was, the, it was Pentecost for the Gentiles in this section. But as I worked my way through it, I said, there's nothing bigger than Peter finally understanding that every man, every man, woman, boy, and child is made in the image of God with a soul that will last forever. Let me pray. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for your word and thank you that we have it and that this morning we're able to look into it. Father, thank you for working in Peter's life and for showing him that the centurion and his family were loved by you. Father, lay upon our hearts, our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones, that we would pray for them, that we would be willing to live as becomes the followers of Christ before them, that we would be willing to share even the gospel of the Lord Jesus with them. They have souls that will last forever. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing hymn 441.